Gospels and turn with me to Matthew 25. Matthew, the 25th chapter. Had a little break from our, our study with our uh, fall revival, and I'm thankful for uh, the preacher who came and gave us the Word of God. I'm thankful also that uh, uh, he put a little more uh, wear and tear on the carpet instead of just in one place here. I, uh, it's getting kind of worn here where I stand, but uh, he kind of made sure that this part and this part and down there, that was all... Uh, getting uh, evenly worn as well. I'm thankful for that. So, uh, but uh, you gotta, uh, gotta just stay awake, trying to follow him around the around the platform here. But, all right, uh, Matthew chapter 25 this morning, and uh, we're going to continue studying uh, this great uh, gospel uh, here in Matthew 25, and we're going to look at. Are you ready? Verses 1 through 13. If you'll turn there to Matthew 25 and verses 1 through 13. And we're going to uh, read these uh, 13 verses and you follow along as I read in your copy of God's Word. Uh, chapter 25, verse 1. Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom, and five of them were wise, and five were foolish. They that were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps, and while the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. At midnight there was a cry made, Behold, the bridegroom cometh, go ye out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said unto the wise, Give us your oil, for our lamps are gone out. But the wise answered, saying, Not so, lest there be not enough for us and you, but go ye rather to them that sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and they that were ready went in with him to the marriage, and the door was shut. And after came also the other virgin, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. And he answered and said, Verily, I say unto you, I know you not. Watch therefore, for ye know not, or know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. Now here we have a nighttime wedding. Everything seems to go wrong. The groom shows up so late that the bridal party falls asleep by the side of the road. I don't know, uh, I guess it was kind of that way. But when the groom finally arrives at midnight, the bridesmaids have forgotten to bring enough oil for their lamps and they end up being banned from the celebration. And as our story concludes, the rejected bridesmaids are standing outside the door asking for admission but to no avail. Uh, They have been shut out from the wedding banquet. Uh, It's a sad, strange ending to what should have been a most joyful occasion. But other than that, it was a perfectly normal wedding. Now, this passage is a parable. It's a parable that Jesus told to illustrate a certain truth about His second coming. And the parable itself is is a little masterpiece, if you will, with each detail kind of adding a piece of the crucial information. As I've studied this parable, I've been struck by one phrase in verse 10, where it says, And the door was shut. 
and the door was shut. Now that's an awful finality uh, about those words. There's an awful finality about those words. It means that the door was shut and locked and would not be opened again. Those on the inside were safely inside. Those who are on the outside would never get in, no matter how hard they tried. And there is a door that leads to heaven. It is the door of God's grace. It's held open by the bloody cross of Jesus Christ. And even more than 2,000 years, that door has been open to the entire world, and it is open today. And over the door are these wonderful words, I believe. Whosoever may come. Whosoever will may come. Anyone, anywhere, anytime can go in that door and find new life, can find salvation, forgiveness, and freedom, and eternal life. Now today, the door is open, but our text reminds us that the door will not be open forever. And since our church is right outside the local ambulance headquarters, I often hear their siren, and sometimes the Flight for Life helicopter flies right directly over our, our house where we live. And each time I hear that siren or I hear that Flight for Life helicopter, I'm reminded that life is short and that it's uncertain. And perhaps the door of opportunity has been shut on someone through death. And we can be certain that death does shut the door of God's grace. For once we die, the only thing left is to face God in judgment. Hebrews 9.27 says, 27 says Behold, our, it is appointed unto men once to die, and then the judgment. See, there's no second chance beyond death for those who had no time for Jesus in life. Once you die, the door is shut forever. Either you go through the door while you are alive, or you'll never go through at all. And Jesus uses this parable here of the ten virgins to remind us that the door will be shut once and for all when He returns to this earth. In order to catch the impact again of this story, we need to know something about first century Jewish wedding customs. In those days, you got married almost like in three stages. First, there was kind of the formal engagement, which was always, usually, most always, was arranged by the parents. Some months later, maybe a year or more, came a formal religious ceremony in the bride's home. And that would be something like our modern wedding ceremony. Similar, but not exactly, but... Then thirdly, there would be a wedding banquet or a feast at the groom's home. And the banquet would take place sometime after the formal ceremony, usually at night. And it might happen the same day or it might even take place a week or so later. But in most cases, that banquet would last up to seven days. And so it was quite elaborate and it cost a lot of money. And therefore, it was a major social event that everybody would want to attend. When it was time for the banquet, the groom would take his bride, and together they would walk to the groom's house, and the road before them would be lit with lamps held aloft by the wedding party. 
And the bridesmaids would take part in the ceremony by welcoming the bridegroom and the bride, even though she's not mentioned here in our parable, as he prepared to come for the banquet. Now, it would be a a big deal, a major breach of etiquette for anyone in the wedding party not to be by the road and welcome the bridegroom. And so that's kind of the background to this parable that the Lord gives. The formal ceremony having taken place, the ten virgins or the bridesmaids are by the road waiting for the groom to appear, and their lamps are lit. They anxiously await his coming. And when he is delayed, they all fall asleep. At midnight, someone shouts the good news, Behold, the bridegroom cometh. The virgins wake up and prepare to relight their lamps, and they've gone out while they were sleeping, and five of the virgins have brought extra oil so they can relight their lamps. Five have no extra oil. When the first group asks to borrow some from the other five virgins, they are refused. And when they go off to buy some, the bridegroom appears and the five virgins with the lamps that were lit went in with him and start the party. The door was shut by the time the other five returned. Now here's the sad end of this story. We find it in verses 11 and 12. It says, Afterward came also the other virgins, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. And Jesus makes a simple application to his second coming here in verse 13, when he says, Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour when the, wherein the, Lord, the Son of Man cometh. So that's the story. That's a little slice of life from a wedding that went haywire. And the focus of the story is on the ten virgins. Five were wise, five were foolish. Five had oil and five did not. Five were ready and five were not ready. Five entered the wedding and five were refused. And all of this is meant to teach us that some people will be ready and others will not be ready when Jesus returns. So let's look at this in a little more detail. First of all, notice they're alike in many ways. They're alike in many ways. One of the most striking facts about this story is how similar these ten virgins appear on the surface. First of all, all had been invited. All had been invited to the banquet, and all had responded positively. All ten had gone out to wait for the bridegroom. All of them had their lamps with them. All of the virgins wanted to see the bridegroom. All were in the right place at the right time for the right reason. And then all of them wanted to go to the wedding banquet. All of them had some oil in their lamps at the beginning. All of them fell asleep while waiting for the bridegroom. All were awakened by the midnight cry. All ten virgins got up to prepare their lamps. But then all appear to be equally prepared for the bridegroom's coming. And I believe that last statement is crucial. Let's suppose we were to ask the ten virgins to stand here in front of us in no particular order. We wouldn't have five wise and five foolish, but we just kind of mix them up, kind of have a lineup. <laughs> Could you pick out the five foolish virgins? Well, no. 
We couldn't. We could argue about it and say, well, hey, you know, number two looks a little bored. Maybe she's a foolish virgin. Or we could say, hey, look at number six, she's chewing gum. How wise can that be? Or we say, I know number ten, and there's no way she's a wise virgin. But it wouldn't make any difference. Because I submit to you that there's no way to tell in advance who is wise and who is foolish. To the untrained eye, they would all look the same. But notice one crucial difference. Yet there is one crucial difference. You couldn't see it by casual observation because it wasn't a matter of dress or outward appearance. I imagine that all bridesmaids dressed alike. You know, that's kind of the way things we do things today. Maybe they did them that way back then too. Maybe they all had matching dresses or, or, or gowns made by the uh, 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 Mrs. Fleming. You know, she's the seamstress around here. I can imagine they're all dressed alike, they looked alike, but there's something else, something not readily uh, visible that uh, separated these young girls from each other forever. Five were wise and entered the wedding banquet. Five were foolish and were excluded. What made the difference? Well, verse 5 offers a clue. While the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. Where was the bridegroom and why was he late? Well, the text doesn't tell us. Jesus didn't give that part information in this parable. And I suppose it's because the reason doesn't really matter. If the wedding was last Thursday, perhaps he was at the Green Bay airport when a football fan ran past the security and retrieved his camera and ended up shutting down the airport for hours and delaying flights all over the eastern United States. Maybe it was something like that. Or perhaps he had a business that he had to attend to, some business, or maybe his parents were, fell ill or something like that. We don't know. The reason's not given to us. It had to be something important because the delay was in no way due to any reluctance, his reluctance to get married. We know that because when he finally shows up at midnight, instead of postponing the party, you know, if you're going to have a party and it's going to be at midnight, most of us say, hey, it's too late, let's go to bed. He hadn't shown up yet, we can do this another time. But he says, no, let's go with it. Let's have the party, let it begin. And he brings, and that brings us to the key point of the parable. Five virgins figured out that he might be late in arriving, so they brought extra oil with them. And that's why they were prepared when he finally does show up. The other five virgins evidently never thought about the possibility that he would be delayed, or they thought if they thought about it, they just say, ah, no big deal, no worry, surely we'll have enough. Either way, they weren't prepared when he arrived at midnight. So, before we begin to feel sorry for them, please consider this. The foolish virgins knew that the bridegroom was going to get married. They knew that. They knew that he would come to the banquet. And they knew they needed oil for their lamps. It's not a matter of lack of information. 
or having the wrong information. Because all ten virgins started with the same information, the same facts. The five foolish virgins had everything they needed to know, and still they were not ready. Now, there are two other questions, and then we can move on. First, if they apparently managed to buy some oil after midnight, as the story seems to imply, why were they not let in at that point? Well, the answer is, they waited too long. No doubt their intentions were good, but good intentions are not enough. Once the door was shut, it would not be opened again, no matter how long they stood outside or how loud they shouted. And second, what does that oil represent? I think the best answer seems to be that it represents the inward preparation of the heart for the Lord's return. Or we might say it could even represent true conversion. In the Old Testament, oil often stands for the presence of the Holy Spirit. And we might then say that the oil represents the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit that accompanies true conversion. The five wise virgins represented those whose hearts have been truly changed by the power of the Holy Spirit. The five foolish versions represent religious people who come under the conviction of the Spirit, but they never get converted. They never get saved. And so that brings us maybe to some lessons for modern churchgoers. From this little parable, I think we can draw a number of important spiritual lessons. As we think about these things, let's remember that this story is for all of us this morning who are in attendance at church. It's for those who claim some attachment to Christ and who profess some allegiance to Him. Now, I don't know what you expected when you came to church this morning, but I hope it was not like the picture of churchgoers I came across recently. It was this crowd... I hope there's nobody in here like in this, from this crowd. One says, don't mention hell, it makes me feel uncomfortable. Another one has a sign that says, please refer to sin as bad choices. Don't talk about sin. Or tell me again how much God wants to bless me. I like to hear that. Or maybe make sure there are enough programs for my kids. And... Maybe someone would say, remember how much money I give each week? Or tell me how to get rich. Tickle my ears. If you don't do things my way, well, I don't know if I'm going to hang around very much. How about, what can Jesus do for me? Only preach good news. And don't preach or talk about the cross. Be relevant. That's a crowd that you'll find in many churches today. I hope it's no one in this church. I hope none of you are here for any of those reasons this morning. But this is the attitude of many going to church throughout our country today. So let's talk for a moment just about the true nature of the church. Now, I realize what I'm about to say here for a few minutes. It may be a little bit controversial for some. But as I've studied this particular subject, 
These are the conclusions I've come to. Every Sunday there are two groups of people that gather here on the corner of Green Valley Road and US 63 in Spooner, Wisconsin. Some of you are part of both groups and others of you are actually only a part of one group. These two groups are the local church and the family of God. The local church is everyone who is identified as a member of Spooner Baptist Church. And I know some of you consider this to be your church, and we are so glad to see you. We rejoice that you come and you attend. But you know what? You've never committed yourselves to being a member of this church. I had a man in a church I pastored who said, Why should I become a member of something I'm already a member of? That is, the church. He, along with many others, believe there's no such, or there is such a thing as a universal, invisible church which all believers belong to. But you know, as you study the Bible, the Bible actually says that the family of God is the terminology for all believers. When you get saved, you get born again into the family of God. You become a child of God. But everybody that comes is get saved, is not become a member of the church. Because the church is the ecclesia. That is the assembly or the gathering. That's what we've done this morning. We've gathered. We've assembled ourselves. Yes, I believe there's a great assembly or gathering of all believers someday in heaven. But the only church today is the local Bible-believing, Bible-practicing New Testament church in a particular location. This church, Spooner Baptist Church, is a body of believers that assemble to worship and glorify God. And there are many other bodies of believers that assemble in a particular location to do the same thing. God's method of accomplishing His work in this age or this dispensation we know as the church age is the local church. Now, even though I believe that all truly born-again Christians are members of God's family, they should also be members of a Bible-believing church. And by the way, Spooner Baptist Church would not be in existence today unless there are those who are willing to commit themselves to be faithful members. You can't have a church unless you have membership. We cannot conduct the business of this church without a membership. But you know what? That's really not the main point of what I'm trying to say here and what Jesus is talking about here. The point is that there may be some of you here this morning who are members and are saved. I think that should be the way it is. Do you know what? There are some of you here who are members, and you still may be unsaved. You say, what? Pastor, you mean that you have someone in this church as a member of your church, and they're not saved? What I'm saying is that God knows your heart. And when you presented yourself for membership, perhaps you knew all the right words to say, but in your heart, you knew you had no real relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And we as Baptists, one of our distinctive is that we believe in a saved, baptized membership. 
And yes, it is possible that someone can say they are saved and they can give testimony to that. They could have gone through the baptismal waters and they could have come up as dead as the world. And they actually have no relationship with God. See, the local church is an institution made up of those true believers in Christ who worship Week by week, and the point of Christ's parable here is to remind us that just because you go to church doesn't mean you're truly born again. People come to, uh, to church for all kinds of reasons. Some are good and some are not so good. People come because of the family ties. Uh, they come to see their friends. They come to get out of the house. They come because they like the music. They come in order to impress people and because of a feeling of guilt or obligation because they think they can gain favor with God by being in church. Not all of those things are evil in themselves. But any of them or all of them can be excuses that keep you from coming to Christ for salvation. You know, going to church is good. But coming to Christ is better. You know, being baptized is good, but being born again is even better. In fact, being born again is supposed to be a prerequisite for being baptized. Giving money is good, but giving your heart to Jesus would be better. Being religious is good, but knowing Christ as your Savior and the Lord is better. You know, being an attender of this church is good, but being a faithful member would be better. Now, you could be a member of Spooner Baptist Church and still not be a Christian this morning. And to some people that might be a shocking thought, but it's true nonetheless. Church membership identifies you with the local body of Christ, but only true saving faith makes you a part of the family of God and having a personal relationship with the Lord. And so I think we need to realize that some, uh, in what Jesus is telling us, there, you know, everybody looks the same, but not everybody is the same. The second thing I think that we need to look at here is the impossibility of borrowed faith. One striking feature of this parable occurs when the foolish virgin asks the wise virgins to borrow some of their oil. And the refusal may seem selfish and unkind unless you understand the situation. You see, to loan oil, that would would mean no one would have enough oil. And the larger point would be, is clear here, no one can borrow another person's faith. Every one of us as an individual is going to stand before God and give an account for our faith. What do you put your faith in? You see, you can't get to heaven by living near a saved person. You can't get to heaven by living with a saved person. One day you're going to stand before the Lord and He's going to say, Why should I let you in my heaven? And the answer you will give would be what? Well, my mother was a godly woman. That's why she's in heaven. And that's why you should let me into heaven. Or my dad was a deacon, you say... Fine, that's not why he's in heaven. Any way his being a deacon won't do you any good. 
Oh, but I went to Bible college. Come on. You've got to let me in. I went to Bible college. Outcome is the same. You can't borrow faith from the school you attended. Salvation is always a personal affair. You can't go to heaven by hanging on someone else's coattails. You must believe in Jesus on your own for yourself, not relying on the faith of those around you. Listen, young people, especially today, you cannot say you're a Christian because mom and dad are Christians. I heard a famous radio talk show host say, Oh, I've always been a Christian. I grew up in a Christian family. You know, I've always been a Christian. Well, he was basically saying he was a Christian instead of being a Jew or a Muslim. But being a Christian is not just being religious. Being Christian is being saved. Being a Christ follower. And you're not saved until you personally put your faith in the fact that Jesus died on Calvary's cross for you. There's an impossibility of borrowed faith here, and I believe that's the, one of the points of this parable. Thirdly, the coming end of the day of grace. Again, remember the words there in verse 10, and the door was shut. No door stays open forever. The foolish virgins forgot to bring extra oil, and then they went out to buy some oil. They went down to the uh, 24-hour quick trip, And they went to buy some oil. By the time they got back, it was too late. The door was shut. And today, the door of salvation is open to everyone, one and all. It's open wide. And when you die, the door will close. And when Christ comes back to this earth, the door will close. And what will you do then? Some people act and live as they're going to live forever. This past week, we just celebrated, or I don't know, not celebrated, we just remembered. You don't celebrate 9-11. You remember it. But do you realize after September the 11th, 2001, how anyone could, could think this way, that they're going to live forever? Do you know there were at least three people who were in the World Trade Center on September the 11th, 2001, and they got out alive, and they died in a plane crash in Queens, New York, just a few weeks later. You say, wow, how could anybody survive that? Well, they did survive it, but they died just a few weeks later. You escaped the worst terrorist attack in American history only to die on a plane bound for the Dominican Republic. What is your life? Your life is but a vapor that appears for a while and vanishes away, according to James chapter 4. No one knows what tomorrow may bring. Perhaps you will live another 20 years, or another 20 months, or another 20 days, or you might just live another 20 minutes. Who knows? Do not say this, someday I'll come to Christ. Someday I'll do it. I'm not going to... I'm going to do it right now, but someday I'm going to do it. You may never get to that someday. Don't wait for someday. Do not say, I'll repent later. If you wait, you may harden your heart and it'll never come at all. And then fourthly, there's the danger of self-deception. 
And I believe in this story we see a warning about the danger of self-deception. What a sad scene as these five foolish virgins plead at the door. Let us in. Let us in, sir. You've invited us. We're sorry we're late. We didn't realize you would be delayed. Please let us in. We mean no disrespect. And from inside comes the reply, I know you not. Consider these young women. They thought they were friends to the very end. They were never his enemies. They thought they were ready to meet him, but they weren't. In the same way, many religious people will tragically be surprised in that day when they present outward righteousness and inward emptiness only to hear the Lord say, I know you not. And I'm struck even more by the fact that these five virgins were never called sinners. They were never accused of gross immorality. But by outward appearance, they seemed ready to meet the bridegroom. And it's clear that they truly wanted to see him. That's a part of the tragedy. If they were visibly sinful women, we could understand their being shut out of the banquet. But between them and the five wise virgins, there's really not much difference. Outwardly, they were all the same, but inwardly, there was a huge difference. The five foolish virgins were not ready. They could not borrow the oil and they could not beg their way in. These women did nothing. But you know what? That was their problem. They did everything right, but one thing that mattered most, and that is why they were shut out of the banquet. Some people will miss heaven, and it will be no one's fault but their own. You won't be able to blame your father or your mother or your friends or your husband or your wife or your in-laws because you're going to stand before God accountable to Him. If you miss heaven and wonder why, go home and look in the mirror and you'll find the answer. Some people will find the value of Christ too late. They will suddenly realize how wrong they've been, but the door will already be shut. The world will one day declare that the followers of Christ made the wise decision. And today, this morning, the door of salvation is wide open. Someday it will be shut forever. And I plead with you this morning, make sure you're on the right side of the door when that day comes. Let's pray. Father in heaven,